Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, are you aware of the ongoing crisis that we face uh, in this country, but also but really around the world, um, in which normal sheets of paper, mm-hmm. flat sheets of paper, yes. have taken on the form, per- perhaps with the aid of, uh, of, of human hands, mm-hmm. into three-dimensional shapes, often animal shapes, um, and then... They're just loose. They're they're, yes. they're 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 on our Chinese takeout. Yes. They are in our hotel rooms in the form of, of towel creatures. It's the origami menace. Yeah. And I've seen it everywhere. Yeah. And then what are you supposed to do when you need a towel? It's taken on the form of a duck or a monkey. Or you, a piece you, of paper for your grocery list. It's yeah. all twisted up into this elegant swan. And you have to essentially murder the swan in order to find out what you're supposed to buy. You have to murder a monkey yeah. in order to towel yourself off. I actually you, sometimes cut the heads off. Oh, that's really frowned upon. Yeah, my daughter doesn't like it. Uh, the cutting the heads off of monkeys? Of her origami. Towel monkeys? No, no. Okay. Paper monkeys. Paper monkeys. Yeah. She cuts the heads off? I do. Oh, okay. Just to, just to, to all right, I kid, okay. I kid. Uh, but actually, her babysitter mm-hmm. creates origami. Her babysitter, we could do an entire episode on because she's like one of those like super teens uh-huh. who is uh, you know volunteering in a neuroscience lab and also practices falconry as well as softball and origami. Excellent. So I have been introduced to it in several different ways, but one of my favorite ways is in the documentary Between the Folds. Yes, this is an excellent documentary. It came out a few years back, and uh, I saw it for the first time, I think, on Netflix streaming. And I, I think I did a blog post about it and then convinced myself that we had recorded a podcast about it. Because I was looking at, for it the other day, and I was yeah. like, where's that podcast we did on origami? And then I was oh, we never did one. I think we both saw it, and we were so like, God, this is great, and really amped up, and then sort of... checked it off. Yeah. That was an awesome podcast (laughs) on that. Um, So we're really happy that it came back around, because uh, that documentary is fascinating and really plums the depth of this artistic form, which is informing all sorts of stuff, like applied mathematics and engineering, and we'll talk about that. Yeah, it is. uh, Origami is such a fascinating topic, because it... It, it all begins with paper, which is uh, essentially a recent uh, occurrence on the planet. Yeah, actually, the Chinese first invented paper around 105 A.D., and then during the 6th century, Buddhist monks introduced paper to Japan. And as in China, it became a rare and expensive product, and it was prized, and it was reserved usually for special occasions and religious rituals. But... As it became more common, so did paper folding. And if you look at the word origami, it's a Japanese word, and oru means to fold, and kami means paper. Yeah, the the premium status of paper, I feel like, can't be overstated. Because, again, for the, the, for the longest, for the vast majority of human history, there was no paper. And then as paper began to uh, present itself, paper was, was a premium item to possess. And if you had it, you were 
you were making proper use of it. You were writing on it. You were in, you know, in, in, you were you were drawing on it. You were creating um, art or, or or committing language to the paper, and in many cases, erasing that information or writing or drawing or painting over it because the pe- the paper itself was so valuable that you were never going to crumple it up, even just to throw it in the wastebasket. Now, if you could elevate it to an art form, you could also begin to involve it in some serious ceremonial purposes, right? So then it could be used as this other representation of, I guess you could say, religion or spirit to express some of the thoughts and philosophy behind that. Yeah, because, I mean, uh, it, I mean it's easy to, to see how you end up uh, putting these sacred ideas into the paper itself because language becomes sacred. Uh, artistic uh, interpretations of things become sacred. And as they're committed to the paper, the paper becomes sacred in its own right. And then you begin to manipulate this two-dimensional, essentially two-dimensional surface mm-hmm. into three dimensions. And, uh, and just the, the symbolic power of that. Is, is pretty obvious. Yeah, and there, it's no accident that nature is highly represented in the form of origami, right? Because this is something that would have been in the Japanese tradition to really uphold nature as something that you would want to replicate in any way that you could. Yes, yeah, so you get into the Shinto aspects of uh, of there being a, a sort of Holiness in all uh, in all the corners of nature, and certainly mm-hmm. in in animals, and therefore uh, to to transform. The paper into an animal uh, is, uh, is is itself a, a sacred thing. Now, this comes from the How Stuff Works article, How Origami Works. It says that one of the oldest and most direct references to paper folding appeared in a, a 1680 Japanese poem by Ahara Sakaku, in which the author writes about paper butterflies that appear in a dream, which I think is just lovely. Yes, and then in uh, 1797, that's when you see uh, Akisoto Rito uh, wrote the first instructions for paper folding in a work called uh, Simbarazu Orakata, which means thousand crane foldings. Um, Orakata translated means folded shapes. Uh, but uh, in, 19, in the 19th century, origami becomes the more common term. Now, the, the thousand crane foldings, mm-hmm. uh, that plays into this ancient Japanese uh, legend that promises that anyone who folds a thousand origami cranes will be granted a wish by the crane, or you'll have some sort of a dream manifested. And I actually have a, a couple of friends who did this one year. I think they did it for, for like a New Year's type of thing, where they um, they set out to fold a thousand paper cranes. And I think one, I, I, I don't remember how the dream, uh, you know, wish-granting thing worked out, yeah. but there seems to be a, a law in place that the, the closer you get to that thousand crane point, the more your paper cranes are going to resemble aardvarks. Rather than cranes, because your fingers are going to get get kind of sore, your yeah. work's become becoming more and more imperfect, and by the end, they they look they still look like animals, but maybe not cranes. Maybe it's a, your perception is skewed too, because you know how if you you stare at certain words, all of a sudden yes. they become alien to you. They stop being elegant swans full of wishes, and they're more aardvarks that are trying to chew your fingers off. Well. Uh, now, the father of origami, considered the father of origami, is Akira Yoshizawa whose majority of work came to notice in the 50s and 60s. And we're talking about a Japanese self-taught origami artist. And in the documentary Between the Folds, he says, quote, all origami starts with a flat surface. As as this paper transforms into three dimensions, origami has within it all the possibilities we associate with creative art. And I thought that, to me, is, is really 
underscoring the power of origami, especially when we talk about it in applied mathematics and engineering, these possibilities that it contains within it. And just to give you an idea of how prolific Yoshizawa was, he created 50,000 models, but he never sold a single one. And he sort of revolutionized uh, the whole origami because he used uh, moist paper so that he could sculpt more expressive lines into his creations. And some say that he even um, created the, the language for origami, diagramming all of them. So now today, if you crack open an origami book, you'll see these diagrams, which is what Yoshizawa started doing to document his process. You know, and I think that's one of the... The, the 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 aspects of origami that really appeals to everyone is because and, and so certainly I find myself thinking about this you see a really neat piece of origami and and you you admire the beauty of it you admire the skill and the artistry but then you also know that there is a diagram that shows you step by step mm-hmm. how to get from point A this blank featureless paper uh, right out of the the, the stack uh, beside your printer and how to transform that into that elegant creature, that there are steps to follow, and therefore it seems so achievable that every time I look at origami, I, I kind of think, hey, maybe I'll learn how to do origami. That could be my thing. Uh, and then I sort of imagine myself doing it and realize that I could probably do a lot of it just by following the instructions, and then I don't even bother to actually go down that road. Well, it is really cool, especially when you look at it in the context of the Between the Folds Documentary because it will really challenge your notion of what origami is. You think of a swan, and then all of a sudden you see this one guy in Israel who is creating these concentric spirals nested in one another that are actually active. They actually move. And you see that sometimes people are coming to this in a very organic, intuitive way. And sometimes people are coming at it in a very mathematical way. In fact, the the, uh, documentary really deals with those two schools of thoughts. Yeah, because even the the simplest crane, even the uh, you know the, the the most adorable origami creature, that is a product of, of mathematical precision. That's a matter of these folds, these creases in the paper, uh, ultimately creating the mathematical design uh, of that animal in abstract. Yeah, and lest you think that origami is just this sort of you know informal field, uh, that is very wrong. It's um, there are many different schools of thoughts and forms of origami. In fact, uh, there are different kinds. There's the one that we just described, which is sort of like your traditional swan. Um, Maybe it has, I don't know, 20 steps of diagrams that you would follow, Mm -hmm. while you have other ones that are more like 300 steps of diagram to follow. And you have something called modular, which is just like what you would think of in terms of architecture, like taking two modular units and putting them together. We're talking about separate pieces of paper that are merged to create an incredibly complex sculpture. Then you have action origami, and this is origami that can move uh, with a little human assistance. I believe the, the origami creatures in Blade Runner uh, worked like this, didn't they? Uh, you had the the the, uh, the mustachioed character who kept living little swans. Oh, right, yeah. the detective. Yeah, played yeah. by Edward. Edward Al- Al- almost. Yes, almost. Almost, almost. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Great, great actor, and of course he was. Uh, he, he played that particular role in Blade Runner. Yeah, and I think that was part of the uh, the metaphor. You know, that here is something of, of human creation that is brought to life with the human touch. Uh, be it a replicant or an origami crane. But, yes, uh, action origami is designed so that you can manipulate it and it will cause it to move, like wings to flap or a frog to jump, etc. 
Yeah. And then you have something called Pure Land, which is a style of origami that restricts artists to making only one fold at a time. So complex folds are forbidden altogether. And in this, you really, this example, you see some of this, uh, some of the, the puzzle solving aspects, I think, of origami emerging. How to create things by folding the paper and, and having to, uh, to follow certain rules. I mean, not only the, the physical rules of folding paper, but, uh, but also the rules of the uh, particular style of origami. Yeah, and I remember in the documentary, um, it was really interesting. Uh, they were talking about Euclidean lines, mm-hmm. and we've talked about this before. Euclidean lines do not exist in our reality, right? But if you mash, if you fold everything and you mash it down, right, to one plane again, mm-hmm. then you do have Euclidean lines Again, they they would go off into infinity, but you have this idea of how those would work. And that's what is so beautiful about origami is that it really obeys the the laws of mathematics. And this was plumbed to quite a degree in that documentary, especially with Tom Hall, who works in the math department at Marymount College in Andover, Massachusetts. And he says origami is just such a great way to get your hands dirty with math. It becomes your laboratory for doing math. It can do everything from geometry, but also number theory in abstract algebra and linear algebra in bizarre and weird geometry, like geometry of the sphere. This isn't just compartmentalized math, but math that can be wrapped together in weird ways. And in this, as this whole describes, origami becomes an engineering problem. It ties into the structure of the natural world, of biology, of the cosmos. Uh, again, you're, 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 you're taking mathematics uh, and mathematical purity, and you're also taking this, uh, this sheet of paper, which is also a human's construct, and you're using that um, to, to bring math alive, in a sense. Yeah, and that's what he was saying is so interesting about teaching it that way, because essentially with geometry, it's very abstract. And so if you can create this model that has, as he says, math, and all, all different types of math wrapped up in it, then all of a sudden it becomes something to you. It becomes representational, and that's such a huge part of learning. Now, we meet Tom Hull in the uh, documentary, Between mm-hmm. the Folds, but we also meet another individual uh, who is quite remarkable, a man by the name of Eric Demain, who is the top origami theorist in the world, a professor of computer science at, uh, at MIT, and a uh, a former child prodigy. Although he would say it has nothing to do with his accomplishments. No, but but he's a very bright dude. He, he yeah. started college at 12. He got his PhD at 20. Mm-hmm. Youngest professor ever at MIT. MacArthur Genius Award for his research into folding. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a remarkable cat. Uh, no two ways around. Yeah, and what's interesting is that his dad homeschooled him. Mm-hmm. And he and his dad are very much a team still, it seems like, um, because they're they're puzzle solvers in addition to doing, you know, origami and and, and, um, and him being a professor of computer sciences at MIT. But they come at origami in this problem-solving manner. Yeah, and he's, he's very elegant when he's talking about paper, too, which you might not expect from, yeah. from a child prodigy, uh, MIT computer science uh, paper-folding enthusiast. He's also into glass-blowing, by the way. But he, he describes origami as, quote, changing the memory of the paper. Which is which is an, an, a notable statement to make, especially when you get into some of the applications for origami that we're going to discuss about 
the, the physical memory of paper, uh, you know, about 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 paper taking on three dimensional forms, uh, etc. Yeah, he says that those folds create a kind of tension, and there's an organic shape emerging. And I love this. He says physics finds the right answers, and you see this in paper at play. And uh, we'll go into this a bit more, but he has been instrumental in um, looking at DNA proteins and diseases in terms of origami, because he says, essentially, when you're looking at DNA, you're looking at a folding pattern. And just to be reductionist about it, he's saying that if there's a disease, there's a fold in the wrong place. Yeah, he his work... Uh Takes him from the the, the micro level to uh, to to outer space, as we'll discuss. Yeah, uh, and he, his work is really a great example of, of why origami is is far from being just this mere hobby, from being this mere um, you know abstraction, even mathematically speaking. But it is something with various real world applications. Uh, again, both inside the human body and uh, and in the future, out in the void. On that note, let's take a quick break, and when we get back, we are going to talk about the practical applications of origami. All right, we're back, and uh, we're going to discuss now some of the practical applications of origami. Uh, Some of these are already in place. They're already at work in the world around us. The origami has already escaped and is out there. In other cases, <laughs> uh, we're, we're definitely looking into the future of way that origami is going to uh, inform the shape of future technology. Essentially, though, uh, a number of these, anyway, all relate to a basic principle, and that is if you want to make a flat sheet smaller, mm-hmm. you're going to want to fold it. And if you want mathematical precision in the way you fold it, if you want certain uh, other attributes in play in the way you fold something, then origami is the discipline to seek out. That's right, because we're talking about, um, in this sense, a kind of action origami, right? Yes. So you're, you're, you're shaping the thing, and then you're reducing it back to one plane so that it's compact. So if you could do the same thing while you're packing your suitcase, for instance, uh, which I, I think might be impossible with closed origami, but you could flatten it and then just pop it back up, it would be pretty amazing, right? You could probably get like 30 pounds of clothes into your suitcase. And so if you look at airbags, this is the perfect example of all these things that we've been talking about because the algorithm used in computer-designed airbags is based on artistic folds of origami. So those airbags aren't, you know, arbitrarily just wadded up, but they're folded to create that one-dimensional plane that springs into action, that three-dimensional life when it's deployed. And in fact, according to Robert J. Lang, who is another one of these, um, like, foremost masters of origami, the airbag flatten algorithm came from all the developments of circle packing and the mathematical theory that was really developed just to create insects. Because he says that in the 90s, if you went to this certain origami convention, people were going nuts with insects and seeing how intricate they could get with them. Mm -hmm. And so every year you'd have more and more intricate insects being introduced, um, or you'd see scorpions one year. It's that desire and drive for artistic excellence that helped to inform the algorithms that created the airbags that we now have in our cars. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, to go back to... To your example about packing a suitcase, I mean, it's, it's essentially there. There are there's a bad way 
to pack a suitcase, you could probably sit around and think of the most impractical way mm-hmm. to pack a suitcase so that it would be more of an effort to unpack it. And then there is the most effective way that allows for rapid unpacking. And when an airbag goes off, it's essentially the rapid unpacking of the materials in there. Someone has to come up with this sort of clothes packing suitcase <laughs> origami. Yeah. You imagine you just open your suitcase and everything just springs to life. That would that would be good. Yeah, it's just it's out there and then you're you're ready to 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 move on with your stay in the hotel. There you go. Um Another uh, area that we see um, application of origami is uh, in the world of telescopes, uh, surprisingly enough. Um, we see this in the eyeglass telescope, uh, NASA's eyeglass telescope. We see a foldable satellite lens that's designed to unfurl in orbit. And uh, this is just simply a practical way to fold and store a lens that's made of many segments. And again, it comes back to the basic principle of origami. I have something that's large mm-hmm. and more or less flat or composed of flat components, and I need to store that in a smaller form. Yeah, and Robert J. Lang, uh, he actually created this, and he used the umbrella design that folds down to a cylinder, and then it pops up. And just as a side note, this guy, he ditched his day job at a fiber optics company 13 years ago to devote himself to folding paper, just as a folding paper artist. Mm-hmm. And these are some of the, the applications that have come out of his work. And, and just in case anyone is, is wondering, that you'll see these individuals refer to it as folding, they, because it, it can sort of sound like, oh, you quit your job to fold paper. But, but no, they often refer to their passion as, as folding, um, in, in addition to the use of the more uh, elegant uh, origami. As long as we're in space, uh, let's talk about solar sails. Um, the, there's, a, there's a particular fold uh, known as the Miriori Fold, and this was uh, invented by Japanese astrophysicist Koro Miura. And uh, this is uh, a technology that we, you actually see used in various Japanese space program satellites. Um, and again, it comes back to the principle... You have this solar sail, and we're all familiar with this. This is the uh, uh, the more or less flat surface that is out there mm-hmm. to uh, to absorb solar energy uh, for the benefit of the satellite to power the satellite. So you want to be able to pack that into a very compact shape, uh, and you want a fold that can be unpacked in a very uh, in, a, in a single motion by pulling uh, an opposite end of the folded material. So this way you reduce because it's, it's all about the economy of getting something in orbit. Uh, so. You want it. You want the best fold arrangement possible, and you want to be able to unfold it with a limited amount of energy. You can't have enormous uh, motors cranking that thing out. So the uh, the economy of origami and the potential of origami uh, really comes into play here. Yeah, and Brian Triese, who is an engineer at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, is looking into using this fold, this Miriori fold, to take materials, apply the fold, and then kind of create useful instruments from them. And he's talking about seismometers or atmospheric detectors and sending them up into orbit, essentially. So he's talking about even having a printer sending it into orbit, and then if you need a different sensor or a different part, you would just upload the design and then print it out while you're in space. Now, this is super sort of like future stuff here. But at the same time, you can see how you can go from something like solar sails to creating these objects that can be, you know, flat packed, essentially like, you know, Ikea parallelogram out there and then printed and creating creating new ones that could be packed down and then 
uh, inflated. Yeah, I mean, to bear in mind that you know we can currently print things like electric circuits, like solar cells, and uh, and and displays directly onto a onto a, a, a essentially a two D paper surface. Yeah, and that that uh, that fact alone really opens up the possibilities of what origami can be. Especially that Muriori kind of fold because um, that kind of fold creates this stiffness, but it also can um, apparently have other properties to it, like sponginess, <laughs> which is really important in engineering. And the dream, according to Cornell's Itai Cohen, who is an associate professor of physics and graduate student Jesse Silberg, the dream is to have atomic scale machines programmed based on folding patterns that could snap into place and perform mechanical functions, kind of like the Transformers, uh, where robots fold themselves up, but then they unfurl into these locked sort of human forms. And this dream has been kind of realized right now. Yes, the, the dream of essentially an origami robot, which this idea really takes me back because when I was in junior high, I, I wrote a short story uh, that involved an origami robot. Now I was very much informed by like there was the story was probably like uh, you know thirty percent me having watched Terminator, right? Thirty uh, percent <laughs> having watched Blade Runner, and then a little bit too of having caught uh, Demon Seed on uh, TBS or something. I don't know if you remember this, but it was a 1977 sci-fi horror film based on a Dean Koontz novel. And mm. in it, there's essentially it's about a robot that wants to get a lady pregnant. Uh, so it's a little... Don't you know, they all? Yeah, yeah. yeah so, so it's a little little seedy, a little exploitive. But the, the robot uses these robotic... Uh, I mean, the computer uses these robotic uh, pseudopods, which in the movie, at least, take on the form of these metallic folding geometric constructions. They're not quite origami but they they call to mind origami so i was thinking about oh what if you had like this this kind of metal origami creature that's essentially a flat sheet but it can fold itself into all the possible forms of a of a, of a, of a sheet of paper that it could essentially become an origami spider or a crane and run around and and you know probably stab people with the sharp ends okay uh, but uh in a sense, that's kind of what researchers have been working on. Not so much the stabbingness, and certainly not the the impregnating part. But no, yeah, uh, no stabbing, no impregnating. Yeah. But Samuel Felton, I feel, that's graduate student at Harvard, may have hacked into your brain a bit. Yeah, uh, 2014 uh, team at MIT and Harvard University, uh, which incidentally d- does involve Eric uh, Demain a little bit, mm-hmm. um, the, the origami. Um, uh, expert that we mentioned earlier, uh, they've been working on origami robots, essentially robots that fold themselves into arbitrary shapes. And in 2014, they succeeded in producing a robot made entirely from parts produced by laser cutting that folds itself up and crawls away as soon as batteries are attached to it. This uh, this thing, which looks kind of like a kind of like an origami spider, but mm-hmm. very much like a robot. Uh, it's, you look at it, and you definitely realize that it's a little robotic construction. But it, uh, essentially, it's made of five layers of material. The middle layer is copper etched into a network of electrical leads, and then that's sandwiched between two between two structural layers of paper. And the outer layers are composed of a shape memory polymer that folds when heated. So after the laser cut materials are layered together, a microprocessor and one or more small motors are attached to the top surface. And at least in this prototype that they have, uh, that attachment is done manually. Uh, but uh, it could be performed by a robotic system in the future. So essentially, 
what we're talking about here, again, is not on origami, the monster that runs around and stabs people, right. but it gets more in line with that idea of a manufacturing technique, of a shape that emerges from a packed form. So instead of it being merely a, a suitcase that opens and unpacks itself, it could be a cube that unpacks itself, um, a, a structure that unpacks itself for use in, in space or on uh, another planet. Or drug delivery, which we'll talk yes. about in a second. Um, but yeah, that that uh, self-folding robot took about two hours to make the prototype, and we're talking about a hundred bucks. So pretty simple and cheap. And according to Kenneth Chang, who is writing for the New York Times, the hope is that this will allow computer software to figure out the cuts and folds needed to create complex robots capable of doing just about anything. And uh, Felton is now adapting the technique on a smaller scale to pursue the creation of insect robots. So conceivably, we could look to a future in which a spaceship using origami solar sails, origami solar panels, and various origami-inspired parts would sail to a distant planet, say Mars, and then it would uh, send a package down to the surface, perhaps using uh, a parachute-type device that is folded like origami, and then once it it hits the, the surface, it would unpack these structures using... Uh, origami-style memory materials and uh, origami-inspired robotic insects. Although at this point, I feel like it might be photons that are (laughs) origami-packed. I I feel like quantum physics has to be involved with this eventually. What I love about this is that that in this scenario, origami kind of becomes the form that humanity takes and human culture takes when it moves beyond Earth. Like, it kind of becomes the idealized version of who and what we are. Maybe I'm, I'm stretching a bit there, but... Robert Lamb, you have an origami soul, an action-induced one. It's lovely. Yes, it's very it's very thin, but if folded enough, it seems to take on it a, just, a substantive form. Yes, it just springs into action. Yeah. Um, now, another way of using origami is with drug delivery, as we said. So if you look at DNA, it's inherently a programmable molecule, and most people know that adenine binds to thymine and that cytosine binds to guanine. So you have your A, your T, you have your C and your G, right, your DNA pattern. And this simple pattern, together with an ability to build custom DNA strands from scratch, that lets scientists design these ACTG sequences that create very specific patterns of inter- and intra-strand binding. So why is this important to origami? It means that researchers can design DNA molecules which fold into incredibly complex three-dimensional shapes And uh, this is how the term origami began to become associated with the industry, especially if you look at Eric Domain's work with proteins. Yeah, because essentially this this is how nanotechnology works. It's not about taking a a human-scale robot and shrinking it down. It's about figuring out how things Mm -hmm. work at at the molecular level. And... And it's easy to to think about drugs and medications and think of it in a chemical sense and think of that that is distinct from physical uh, reality and physical properties. But uh, but but clearly, when we're talking about proteins interacting, this is a physical interaction. And uh, and so we're we're looking even further into the future to uh, the possibility of molecular scale machines that can snap into place and perform mechanical tasks inside the body, outside of the body. Again, the the future when you is is very uh, organic. 
uh, if you will. An origamic future. An origamic I like that. Future. Yeah, the more you, you more you look at the, the applications of origami and where um, where it's being used and where it has potential for use, uh, it, it, it gets more and more fascinating. If you want to try to imagine that, here's an example. Let's say you have a tube-shaped piece of DNA origami. Okay. And that could deliver payloads of drugs to cancer cells. So the tube could open like a clam, but it's clasped shut by two DNA strands called aptamers. And the aptamers are designed to recognize molecules on the surface of cancer cells. And when they do, they spring apart, and they open the tube, and they release the drugs from within. So again, it's a more effective drug delivery system. Yeah, you've essentially made a little box out of uh, out of out of the, these uh, these proteins, and then you have the the lid to the box is hinged on an a pro- on another protein. Again, it's like it's building the robot, building the machine, building the structure out of the materials available at that level. That can recognize other molecules. It's amazing. Yeah. All right, so uh, you're probably wondering what's the largest origami sculpture in the world? Because you know we think about this more on the the tiny scale. Yeah, I mean, because that's that's where you get excited, right? Look at all the detail in that small little paper creature. Uh, and yet there are some, some very large pieces. And the largest uh, so far is a life-size white elephant that was uh, created by uh, origami artist uh, Sifo Mabona. And this is following a successful uh, campaign on uh, Indiegogo, which raised nearly $26,000 uh, so that he could he could bring this to life. It stands 10 feet tall, and uh, it took a team of nearly a dozen people over four weeks to fold it into life. Yeah, a single 220-pound square of handmade paper. Wow. And uh, he made a 37-second time-lapse video of the Project Kidney. says, a lot of people said, maybe you shouldn't show it because it takes away from the magical aspects of it. And he says, it's you know, it's one square of paper and now it's this. How is it possible? But the most important idea of the transformation is that anything is possible. And I wanted people to be able to witness that. So again, I think it's it's really has that sort of elegant idea of the possibilities of this one thing becoming an entirely different thing just with your imagination and just with the sort of physical properties of the world at your disposal. Yeah, and knowing that there are definite steps to follow to to get there. Mm-hmm. You know, in a way it's a perfect symbol for for science itself and uh you know, when when science works and when science is as accurately described a process. Now, the tiniest example we could find comes by way of Christian Elbrandt of Denmark, who folded the world's smallest jumping origami frog. It measures only 0.1 inch. That's 2.7 millimeters long. But it can jump 4 inches, or 103 millimeters. And uh, Elbrandt used tweezers, a scalpel, and a pocket lens to create this, this tiny little amphibian. Huh. But just in case you're out there, and you think this would be really awesome to do, but you have pulpus laceratophobia, you should stay away from this. That is a fear of origami? It's a fear of paper cuts. Oh, yeah. That would be an inherent risk, wouldn't it? It would. Yeah. It well, would maybe if you're you. doing that wet folding technique, though, maybe that, 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 that makes things a little less sharp. But Yeah. There you go. For anybody who has pulpus lacerata. You know, I was, I was just, uh, it just occurred to me, another example of what is essentially origami that uh, a lot of people probably have experience with is what do you call that thing that particularly like 
second graders will do, where you make the little oh, four-way yeah. foldy yeah. thing, mm-hmm. and it has like answers on the inside, and you kind of open it one way, and then it opens the other. Do you, you like me? Yes, maybe. Yeah, that's no. The one. I have to think about it. It's like the mouth of prophecy for uh, for second graders. I do not. I don't know what it's called, but yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about, and I bet that listeners out there have had that experience. Yeah, because that's a definite origami creation. I mean, a paper airplane is essentially a, a functional piece of origami. So, I love uh, that that you can take this. What is a, a sort of like highly charged question at that age? Let's say nine year old, right? Mm-hmm. And you have a crush on someone, and, and you create this origami ish moving sculpture to try to express your feelings. I know it's like it's it's like origami is this powerful thing in human culture that we just totally take for granted. Uh, despite the fact that we we essentially pray to it when we're young children, and uh, and then as adults turn to it for answers to some of our most challenging engineering problems. Indeed, um, I want to remind everybody we've got that article on how stuff works, how origami works. Yes, and the documentary is uh, between the folds. Yes, and if you go to stufftoblowyourmind.com and you're streaming this uh, podcast episode off of our website, I will have links to those uh, and other related sources on the page there with you, so you uh, you don't have to go uh, go anywhere while listening to it. In fact, that site is chock full of stuff. Yes, chock full of all the podcast episodes way back to the beginning, uh, the, the ancient days of, uh, of uh, Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcasting. You'll find uh, all of our videos on the site. You can check out the, the different things we're doing in the video medium, as well as, uh, well as all of our blog posts going back through the years. And if you've got some origami-tinged thoughts to share with us, yes, maybe, no, you have to think about it, uh, you can send those to blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.